when I'm a coach, I control generally the load, the tempo, where the load is placed. So not just the number, uh, you know, on the dumbbell, but also like where, where the actual physical load is placed according to the, or like in relation to their center of mass, I control the rep scheme. I control the velocity on it generally, if I'm, if I'm prescribing it in the right way. And so if I have control over all of these things, and there's probably more that I'm not mentioning and just not thinking of, but when you have control over all those things, the way that you set up an exercise matters. That was Eric Huddleston, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast, starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout, and I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it, and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another show. Thanks for being here with us. So a good question to ask when we are programming exercises in an athletic performance program, a training program, is what factors are we considering when we make the exercise selection that we do? It's very common, myself included, to simply go, say, four weeks, eight weeks on a training block. Okay, time to switch exercises. Let's go from a front squat to a back squat, a bench press to an incline bench press, and so on and so forth. And novelty is a good thing. We do need to change things up, but we can further the accuracy of our exercise selection and giving athletes exactly what they need or, or closer to the, the highest benefit for that athlete by understanding more about the factors and the framework that would dictate what a good exercise to have in the program at what time would be, or a good exercise based off the, the shape and the body shape and structure of the athlete. Our guest today is well-versed in exercise selection in light of greater concepts and ideas regarding the human body and what, these, um, what various exercises are actually uh, biasing in the scope of where the load is placed and how we're performing the movement. And so today's show welcomes back Eric Huddleston. Eric was recently on the podcast on episode 269. We had a great discussion on important elements of squat technique based off individual uh, athletic frames. And in getting through that episode, we only got through a few of the questions I had on the list. And I certainly had some other important questions left over that I wanted to ask Eric. And there was a caption. You'll see it in uh, the show notes. It was off of Eric's Instagram. And it was basically this little chart of expansion moving to compression or contraction and moving back to expansion and when alex effer was on the podcast he talked about the idea of in the off season having more early stance biased exercises for example and so just getting into these ideas of where we are in the season in the grand scheme of training or even coming right off competitions how do we restore and reset the body and then how do we ramp it up for the next competition all these things Eric is going to get into on the podcast in really cool detail today. Just quickly, Eric's bio, if you don't remember it from last time, although there actually are some changes since last time, is that Eric is formerly the director of performance at IFAST or Indianapolis Fitness and Sports Training, and he has moved to a role in the NBA working with the Indiana Pacers as an assistant sports performance coach and is the head performance coach for the G League affiliate, the Fort Wayne Mad Ants. Eric also has NCAA Division I experience in his tool belt. Eric has worked with a wide range of athletes from youth to college to elite and pro level. And so he's going to be getting into that today. How does the level of the athlete impact the type of exercise that you'll be using? He'll be getting into how to organize exercise selection based off of the training schedule. Yeah, whether you're in season and looking at how do I really uh, recover from that last competition or hard practice and then how do I ramp up into the next competition? as well as expanding out into different places in the training year 
and then different places in an athlete's career as you move from novice to elite. What are some different exercise selection prescriptions based off the idea of expansion and compression uh, that we can implement with these individuals? This show gives us as coaches just awesome tools in our tool belt and really helps further understanding. I know it did for me, and I'm excited for you guys to be able to listen to it. So let's get on to episode 283 with Coach Eric Huddleston. Eric, welcome back to the show, man. Could you share with us a little bit, and and it hasn't been too long since the last time you were on, but share with us a little bit about the changes that have happened with you since we last spoke. Yeah, Joel, um, really appreciate it. So since the last time we talked, I've kind of made a transition. I'm now with the Indiana Pacers and and also with their G League affiliate, Portland Mad Ants. So doing, doing you know, completely in the team sector now, transitioned out from IFAS after three and a half years. So I guess now at this point, we're two months into kind of, you know, working in the team setting and uh, a lot of learning. It's been great, uh, great transition so far. So really appreciate you and, and glad to be back on. Yeah, I know I had a lot of fun talking last time and it was one of those shows where either A, I just wrote too many questions <laughs> or B, <laughs> I don't know, we just talked too much on, I don't think we talked too much on what we spoke on. I mean, it was really fun, but we there's a lot of things that we didn't get to. And right. one of the things I wanted to keep chatting about it. I actually came up when I was having a conversation with Alex Effer about the idea of setting up like a, a rolling training schedule, periodization, although sometimes I hesitate to use that term, basically organizing training along a timeline based off of periods of expansion or increasing movement options, periods of compression, compression or more like being able to you know, route that force into more pushing oriented outcomes or anything along that line. Anyways, I, I saw you had made a there's like a just a basic instagram post drawing that i'll be sure to include in the show notes that had that timeline of things and so often i've just thought of periodization as all right i mean at least in my early coaching years it was all right we're going to do a lot of general work and then we're going to filter into some more intense work and then we're going to maintain it but just thinking of it in terms of movement options and expansion and compression offers a, a new layer to that that's so cool so i'll quit belaboring this question and just ask you how do you set up training or could you expand on how you set up training from a movement option and then a performance uh, perspective? Right. And so this has a little bit more context to it now that I'm, that I'm in the setting that I'm in. And it really, if you look, you know, thousand foot bird's eye view of this, you know, whatever I'm doing in the training room, whatever we're doing from a, from an intervention standpoint really has to lead to an angle and we're specific with those type of KPIs that we're looking at with guys. But I think even more generally, you have to look at, does this support or aid in either their performance on the basketball court or, or their ability to be on the basketball court? So, you know, I think those are the two areas that we really have the most, the most kind of, kind of clarity in our positions is being able to say like, this is going to either keep them healthier or, or help them in their performance while they're on the court. And I think, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to rank those two in importance, I think keeping player assets on the court is probably the most important part of my job. You know, the players are being paid to be here. I'm being paid to, to not only, you know, help make sure that they're in shape, but also to, to make sure that they're available to play basketball at the end of the day. That is the goal is to have them do what they get paid to do. So when you look at that kind of from a step back and, and, you know, I, I kind of set up my training cycles in two week blocks now, because really with the schedule, when you're looking at in season, that's as far forward as you can really look. Um, we have our testing planned out each month. So I know, you know, what guys are going to do force plate and what, like, I, I know that schedule and I know the schedule for games, but um, in terms of, you know, travel and, and us being able to, to get training sessions in, it really comes down to a two week block that I have to look at and say, okay, these are the days that I know we're going to have practice. These are the days I know that are going to be off days. And then these are the days that we have games. And fortunately, you know, when you have buy-in from guys, game days become training days. So you, you get to keep a couple of those kind of in the bank. But when you're looking at setting up stuff for indi- like, like a training cycle for an individual player, you have to take into account, you know, their minutes played. So are they a guy who's, who's a starter, who's going to play, 30 plus minutes a game. Um, I think I have it set. I have three categories of guys set up and, and usually it's over 28 minutes per game is, is kind of my starter level. I think 15 to 28 is in the role player. And then less than 15 is going to be kind of, kind of the reserve guy who, who needs a little bit more work off the court. And so if we're taking that guy who's a high minute guy, those games become part of the training cycle. Those games are clearly 
enough load that, you know, I have to take that into consideration when I'm, when I'm putting together a program for them. And I have to be able to say, look, like, is what I'm doing supportive of basketball? And is this going to be something that helps move the needle in one direction or another? So, oh, that was a long way basically of saying if those training days all, if I take into account the fact that we'll have three games this week and those are each opportunities to, to train, you know, in the pregame warm-up section before the game um, and then using the actual game as training load, you know, do I have the opportunity outside of this window to kind of restore some of the healthy qualities? And I'll put that in quotes, give them some of what they don't have that, that they're already getting from the training and from the, from the basketball stimulus. So that's really where setting some of this stuff comes in, you know, during training camp, I think I have kind of a, a tendon protocol that we'll go through to make sure that guys are able to load, that guys are able to, to have some expansive qualities. And so that's really because they're on the court so much during training camp and because all of that stuff is, is so intense from a basketball aspect, I tend to train kind of what they're not getting on the court. And then those days that they have games or the days that they have really, really intense practices, those tend to be more of the, the compressive performance type training days so that we're able to stack loads appropriately. I think I kind of answered what you asked there in a roundabout way, but, sure. but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely asked it in a roundabout way. So <laughs> a roundabout, I should know this by now <laughs> after doing all these episodes, a roundabout question <laughs> is probably going to be impossible to have a very concise answer. Uh, right. But no, I, that totally makes sense. And as you're explaining it, it made me think a little bit more about the nature of the question itself. And that graph you wrote up, the first part was to basically like the early phase or the it starts with learning to accept load. And then the compression is being able to, I guess, display load or express or unload, <laughs> unload the load. So you talk about the three buckets of the players. And I would assume that and in performance training now, we, we certainly have gotten into workloads and understanding training and practices as loading and, and part of the, the training stimulus. How would you consider that practice and games on that load to unload? Like what qualities are, I'm assuming it's more the, un, the unloading, like it's more, I guess we talked last time, like late stance, like pushing, exploding. How do you quantify that and then decide like those players who are playing a lot my, I mean, my, my mind would say, well, they're exploding a lot in the game. So let's set them up with more loading stuff outside of it. With, I mean, I, I won't keep going too much further in that, but I hope that makes sense. Could you clarify a little bit more about what specifically the loading and unloading spectrum and what these players are getting in practice and games and then what they're getting in the weight room? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I have to assume that a majority, because they're on their feet, because of the movements that are involved in basketball, I have to assume that the vast majority of things that are going on on the court are output driven. So they're going to be forced production kind of qualities. And so that's where we get into that compression end of the spectrum. Like guys shouldn't be relaxed. Guys shouldn't be loose. And, and I don't want to, I mean, guys should be relaxed. Like, like basketball for a lot of these guys is not incredibly mentally stressful, mm -hmm. but from a physical standpoint, it is you know, like you're tense. Like this is, this is go time. There's, there's adrenaline kind of going and, and, and we should be, they should be ready to express force in, in whatever way that they can. That doesn't mean that we, that we ignore the, the acceptance of force on the other end of that, because that's, that should be happening every time that we land, but it, it ha only has to happen enough to, to keep the athlete healthy and to allow them to, to, if, if we're accepting force, you need to be able to redirect that force in sport. So as long as they are accepting that appropriately in a way that allows them to redirect, because, you know, motion isn't happening. There's not a lot of stoppage in, in games like this. So it's, it's, you know, can you come down from a rebound and then get into your fast break? So when you're looking at a game day, for example, like my training before a game is really, really output driven. It's really, really force production driven. That's a time when I can get into some speed power training because it's going to lead them onto the court into something that is also speed power. And so I think that ramping them up like that is kind of the appropriate thing to do because I'm trying to get them, get them to an appropriate level to go perform their sport, which is, which is speed power. You know, that's what happens on the court for them. So I try to get their tissues appropriately get them in an appropriate position to be able to display force because that's what's going to happen during the game. At the same time, when we have an off day, like let's say they're, they're not coming in for practice at all, but they want to come in to get a lift. 
that day is generally for me going to be an input day or, or kind of this expansive quality that we're looking for. So how do I restore position that allows them to recover well? How do I regain a position with range of motion and, and allow expansion in the places that should should be expanded? So those are the same conversations that we can have after a game. Also, if a guy wants to come after a game and get kind of this, this restorative movement lift in, then lo- like, let's do that. So you're not spending the rest of the evening in a poor position that's going to cause you to recover poorly. And so that's kind of how that breaks down for me. When you're looking at a guy who played, it's not always easy when you look at a guy who plays 38 minutes and then having them, you know, want to come in for 20 minutes after, after a game is over. But if they see the benefit from that, I'm obviously there and and willing to do that. And so it's just how, how much time do we have? What are the resources that we have? And then am I preparing you to play basketball when you're going to go out and play basketball? And am I preparing you to be a normal human being when you're not on the court doing that stuff? I really like how you put that. And as I think about it too, I've thought in the past, I, I, especially as I got through my years as a strength coach, to me, it kind of showed up as like, if an athlete just had an intense uh, competition, we would do like just more movements, lower intensity, like that kind of thing, which I think is awesome. But I, but the the idea of it being a an input or in a more expansive stimulus, I think, is also really interesting to consider. Like, I think you could say, oh, we're going to do a lot of movements the day after, but what if those movements are really compressive in nature? Like, what if they're more like Pat Davidson has a zone one, two, and three? What if it's a lot of zone two stuff where it's like in these compressive positions? And so, does that factor into what you're doing, or could you explain how that factors into like they just had a game and? what specifically is making up the exercise selection and to how to get these guys to reset for sure yeah so so again if i go back to the idea that that playing basketball is going to be very compressive going to be very exhale position going to take a lot of these positions that are stressful on on the tissues and and what they're able to do those days off when i'm keeping you know when when volume and intensity are low regardless because they're not going to be on the court that day those days have to be set up in a way that kind of drives me back and, and back in terms of, you know, forward and backwards, anterior, posterior. So a lot of the guys that I work with, you know, they kind of live in this anterior orientation, which is going to be compressive on the backside. A lot of them have, you know, compensatory compressions on the front side. So rib cage starts to depress, especially, especially upper rib cage and upper thoracic, because everything is output driven that they're doing under load and, and with force. I try to kind of unload them in, in a lot of kind of interesting ways. And so that's where some of the slower, more controlled movements come into play, especially in the weight room. So we're looking at a lot of staggered stance stuff. It's going to allow them to to kind of unload on the front foot, trying to drive early stance in, in a lot of ways. So whether that's our split squat, and again, we can set up any exercise to bias what we need mm-hmm. to bias. So, you know, when our split squat, instead of us doing a rear foot elevated kind of posteriorly loaded split squat that we would do on an output day. Let's, let's put the load anterior. Let's help you open up your, your dorsal rostral area or the area in your thoracic spine. Um, Let's make sure that you have heel contact on the front leg or on the front foot. um, And you're able to posteriorly shift your weight and and expand backwards in some of those cases. So that to me, if, if that quality is being hit on, often enough and and i kind of use this vertical integration model when you look at how our weeks are broken down to make sure that i'm hitting on all these topics or all these these points of emphasis enough those become useful in sport also and and, you know i've I've, you know made a point of this in the past that you look at guys who who move really really well in athletic positions and they are able and it's just a brief moment but they're able to have that heel contact if we're talking about you know coming into a lunge stance to put the ball between their legs and then push off backwards. Like that happens with that heel contact and it's that quick and they're able mm-hmm. to push back out of that. So from a performance standpoint, I still want them to have access to early positions. I, I don't necessarily train that right before they go onto the court for something like that, because I don't want that position to, to influence too much, you know, the kind of output driven mm-hmm nature of basketball but i do want them to be able to access that it's just really really quickly so that's where some of these transitions and some of the slower and static movements that we do in the weight room on those off days come into play and helping us kind of keep those expansive qualities throughout the season i wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor simplyfaster.com simplyfaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, 
but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In SimplyFaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines, such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units, such as the 1080 Sprint, force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. I like that. It, it makes me think too just how important it is to have, and this isn't, I mean, maybe it will be someday, but this isn't something like I learned in school for strength and conditioning is how do you make an exercise more compressive and output oriented? How do you make an exercise more expansion and I guess you could say recovery oriented of sorts? And now, when Alex Zephyr was on, he was talking about in each for each exercise, you should know a version of this exercise that's more, like you said, like could be more heels, more reaching versus how do I make that make that exercise more output driven, more performance driven? And so just maybe really rudimentarily speaking, if I'm doing, I guess it sounds too like you would do, you would prefer more unilateral as well, coming off of games, more degrees of freedom. Maybe for an example, like you would, like if they're coming off a game, to make it more input, more heels, more more recovery or expansive, like a split squat, you could do like a heels elevated zercher hold split squat. So the weight's very much in front, biasing um, early stance. And then once they get to, like you said, you don't want to do that before the game though, because you want them to start to transition more to that, back to that output orientation. So like a game you would, how would you change that squat up or split squat up once they get prior to a game situation? Right. So I mean, in, in a very similar way, you can just elevate that back foot so you start to shift their body weight and their center of gravity forward over the lead leg. Um, you worry, like, there's still things that I don't, like, I don't let up on. So I don't want to say, like, everybody's doing something floating heel on the front foot. But, like, that's not out of the question. Also, it just depends on the guy. So mm-hmm. you start to shift their their center of, of mass forward. Um, and so maybe it's not even a split squat. Maybe at that point, I'm going to rear foot elevate them. So I'm going to push them forward. So more of the weights on the front leg, you start to get more of that, that anterior tibial translation that you're looking for when you're looking for output driven stuff. Um, you drop them closer to 90 degrees of hip flexion. So you, you start to get more into this IR zone on that, that femur and tibia on the front leg. Um, and I can have them do a med ball chest pass. So like something rapid fire that they're going to kind of keep tension the entire time, but use that to pop. And, and I still get the type of tendon loading that I'm looking for, you know, with that front legs. A lot of these guys have kind of chronic tendinopathy issues, especially at the patellar tendon. And so, so the more ways that I can kind of creatively load that position, I, I, I'll try to do. But you want their, their nervous system ramped up. You want, mm-hmm. you want them to be ready, like I said, to go play basketball. Because a lot of these guys they will lift for 20 minutes in this 30 minute window before they're on the court and then they're they're playing mm-hmm. basketball so I, I don't want to to kind of down regulate their their nervous system right before we get on the court like you said but it 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 looks a lot more like everything is just louder and faster when when you've got kind of that pregame ramp up so you're looking at things that that drive force output so you'll hear a lot of med balls if you walk down the hall you know in, in the hallway outside the locker room when we're going like that split spot example, exactly like you said, like you start to start to push the weight or, or the load more, more posterior to drive your center of mass forward. Um, you start to load more of the forefoot. And so that stuff will start to kind of push them back into that anterior orientation that they're used to playing in. And that that's really going to, to aid in their output. Looking at, or as you're talking about this and just that graph you made, it makes me think about Dan John, I believe, has talked about like the fractal nature of training. And there's a lot of ways to put this, but basically, the, or the micro dictating the macro or anything you look at in the course of like a, for example, like a two week training program that you wrote up that has the periods of expansion and contraction could also look somewhat similar to that on the large scale. And so I like to zoom out to, let's say, preseason or periods of time where athletes are not playing as much or i actually don't know how much the the training loads are in early camp or whatever on the pro level i actually have no idea but how um as you zoom out like let's just say more of a pure like preseason format where 
there isn't as much loads. Um, how does that look like when you have more time and less less load on the system? Right. There, there's a lot of factors in that. You know, I think that in terms of overall basketball, like there's a lot of basketball played in preseason, especially mm-hmm. when you're looking at training camp. Like you have, you know, depending on the coach that you're with, you have five to six days basically of two, two and a half hour practices. So they are on the court a lot. They, you know, generally that is their way of conditioning before the season. So you get everybody like you basically make the practices harder than the games. And then by the time you play the games, you're, you're pretty well conditioned at that point. So they do spend a lot of time on the court, but that is really for me kind of the biggest block of, of uninterrupted learning that you're going to have in the weight room setting. So I try to expose them to a lot of stuff. That's really where you set the tone for, for like what is going to be like how guys are going to respond to things when you're in season and stuff starts to get a little bit more chaotic. So I try to expose them to, to a lot of stuff. That's a great conversation that you have with the coaching staff too, because then it's like, they've got a plan for the week, right? So they know when practices are going to be more intense and when they're going to be less intense. And that's kind of how we have to schedule our training sessions around that. So when things are intense, when, when those training loads on the court are high, we try to match that with a high intensity in the weight room also, so that those days that are lower can stay lower and those days that are moderate can stay more moderate. And that is really, I think, how you allow them to recover. I think that's how you allow them to kind of move the needle in a lot of those things is by, by stacking those things. You can't always guarantee that it's going to be equally, but you try to stack those things as, as concisely and as appropriately as possible with, with what they're going to be doing on the court. So let's say if we've got five days in our training camp window, three of those days are going to be really, really high intensity. And so we're going to match those with, with higher loads, maybe a little bit more of that speed strength or speed power type of, type of uh, velocity, if you want to look at velocity, because that's something that we do track. So the lifts are going to be designed to, to kind of match with those training loads on the court. The days that, that are going to be lower, those are days that we're going to learn kind of you know, movement quality type things, things that are going to help restore position. And then even that breaks down, like it's so variable because then you have guys who will complain of now basketball is becoming too much for them. So like, let's get you, let's, let's have more of this input driven training session for you today. That way you're available to play. Cause again, at the end of the day, if guys aren't, they see me before they go out on the court generally, you know, I have some guys that prefer to come in after, after practice, but if they, if they see me before they go out on the court, I want to make sure they're feeling good when they get out there. So that, that, you know, some days I do have to break away from that output before output type of training. And I have to say, okay, like, let's, let's tone you back. Let's bring you back a little bit and help you help you regain some range of motion here before we go on the court. That way you're allowed to perform what you're, what you're, what you're here to do. And so that's kind of how that breaks down in a, in a training cycle. And I don't know that it changes that much in season. Obviously the training sessions are, are less frequent. Um, you know, we have much, many fewer practice days now than we did at the beginning of the season. So now it's, it's, you know, how do we break down those sessions again, treating what they do in basketball as training is, has been kind of a, a really big eye opener because you always think, you know, these are the qualities that we need to hit on, but now it's like, okay, this has been trained. Like I can go back and look at, look at, you know, the data that we get on the court and say, you know, we hit this many, you know, high intensity sprints. So I'm not going to worry about that in my training for the next five days, basically. So, so what are the other things that I need to make sure that we're continuing to hit on for this guy that are, that are going to, you know, make sure that they're performing at the, at the highest level and that they can also stay healthy. It definitely seems that in situations where, I mean, basketball, I know all sports are like this to an extent, but where an athlete is just doing a, a sport with such high output demands for such a long portion of the year you really do have to get so surgical in making sure that those demands are mitigated like how might that differ for let's just say um a youth like maybe a high school athlete who has more time hopefully between periods of intense activity like maybe they do two sports and have a small chunk of time where they have more free time or perhaps a college schedule where there might be a little bit more on some on some level or maybe not but how would you treat that uh, ratio if an athlete does have like if they do have a little bit of time how are you going to look at structuring that off-season or early season training period uh, from a compressive or expansive nature yeah so i think my favorite part about that is is 
you know, that's, that's been kind of my life for the last couple of years. And I think when you get down into like the, the nitty gritty of it and they're playing less of their sport, it can almost become more 50, 50 in type in the way that you're looking at compression versus expansion. When you're prescribing your compression in the right way, it doesn't take a lot of it to move the needle forward in terms of force output, Yeah. but it kind of quickly on the back end can take away from some of the expansive qualities. So especially when you're dealing with a youth athlete, you know, muscle mass by nature is compressive, but you know, anytime that you're adding muscle mass on somebody that is aiding their compression and, and whether that's a positive or negative is, is a case by case basis, right? Like we've all seen bodybuilders that can't mm-hmm. wash their hair, or brush their teeth because that, <laughs> You know, they're not yeah. able to get their arms up that high. And so you dial that back and look at a high school or a college age athlete. And if they're being consistent with their training, which, you know, a lot of the people that I was working with at the time were 50% of their training, let's say in that window being biased towards compression is going to aid in their compression. Now, at the same time, I, I think that you kind of have to balance that out with, you know, what's going to keep their movement quality and what's going to keep their access to that compression at a high level. And, and, and that's where you bounce some of the stuff out. So even intra exercise, you can look at the way that you set something up. Um, and like, let's use that split squat example again. So the things that I control, and this is what you talked about when you said they don't teach this in school and they don't, let's look at the variables that you control in terms of, of how you set up an exercise. So when I'm a coach, I control generally the load, the tempo, where the load is placed. So not just the number, uh, you know, on the dumbbell, but also like where the actual physical load is placed according to the, or like in relation to their center of mass, I control the rep scheme. I control the velocity on it generally, if I'm, if I'm prescribing it in the right way. And so if I have control over all of these things, and there's probably more that I'm not mentioning and just not thinking of, but when you have control over all those things, the way that you set up an exercise matters. And so if I'm looking for 50% compression, 50% expansion, let's just use that round number, even though I can't guarantee either of those things are, you know, happening at that percentage. If I offset a split squat, so if I, if I ipsilaterally load a split squat, so the leg that's forward, um, the weight's hanging on that same side, and I set their tempo at three seconds down, they're going to go to about 90 degrees of hip flexion, they're going to come up as quickly as they can, then I've biased and inhalated early position on their front leg side on the way down. And I've biased and exhaled position on the way up because of the speed that I'm, that I'm requiring happens uh, on the concentric portion of that lift. So that's a really, that's a really like low level example of what I would do, but like that works like that in itself says, we're going to work on how you load, not necessarily your rate of loading because it's slow on the way down, but like how much quality you have, where I'm allowing you to get depth to. So if I put you at 90 degrees and I put a pad under your knee to make sure that you don't go any lower than that, then I'm ensuring that you end that at the most compressive position of your split squat, which is going to be that 90-90 position. And then I'm, you know, mandating your tempo on the way up. If I prescribe something in that, you know, in a lower weight range, then I'm also ensuring that you get velocity on the way up. So I'm, I'm, you know, making sure that you're, you're able to compress, but you're able to compress quickly, which is going to be important for sport and that you're able to load with control on the way down. So I've kind of covered all the bases of things that I would think about, and then you can layer on breathing. So if, you know, if I'm looking to bias an inhale on the way down, what do you think my breath cycle is going to be on the way down? Oh, <laughs> um, honestly, I don't know, but t- from a time perspective, like how long? No, it's just like, if I'm looking to bias an inhaled position on the eccentric portion of the split squat, I'm going to, I'm going to coach an inhale. Oh God. I thought you were looking for like a tot. You said breath cycle. No, I was like, how sorry. long? I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> I right. no, like so, I so let's say it takes, you know, let's say I want five seconds on that eccentric portion, which isn't unreasonable to ask for, but if I want five seconds, that should get, that should give me a full inhale. So then I'm looking at a pelvis that descends appropriately. I have control over it. So I'm not letting them just fall to the bottom. And then, you know, they're able to redirect that quickly because I'm asking for speed on the way up. Um, and that's generally going to be an exhale on the way up. So now I've kind of in one exercise touched on everything that I wanted to touch on that I think is important for that athlete. And uh, those qualities don't necessarily change regardless of the exercise that I'm looking at after that point. Gotcha. I was going to ask a question about the pro players and that kind of surgical approach in the inhale. But I, let me ask about compression as long as we're here. So with athletes, I mean, I guess any level athlete, but maybe youth could be a good example. 
you spoke on compression. Is it good or bad in context? Um, could you give me, me an example of athletes who maybe they need more compression, like com- more compression will help them versus yeah. an athlete where it's, well, no, more compression is going to hurt you. Could you draw that distinction for me? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of the time I might've mentioned this last time also, but, um, you know, when I was working in the private sector, a lot of the athletes that I worked with were, uh, you know, female high school and early college age volleyball players. Mm. And based on their like axial skeletal shape, um, like gravity was not their friend. Yeah. Right. So, um, generally they would have a narrow ISA. Um, and so that's their infrasternal angle, um, or the measure between, between their lower ribs. Um, and they'd have a wider pelvic base. So, you know, pelvic, um, inlet that was very open and bowl shaped and a pelvic outlet that was kind of closed off. So when you look at the way that, that force and pressure work, um, from the top down, you know, things were, were kind of being shoved down towards the bottom of their pelvis, um, and, and not really easily redirected back up. And this is a sport obviously in volleyball that requires a lot of redirection. Um, and you know, the main thing that we notice in a lot of those, those athletes are kind of the strategies that they use to, to produce force, which, you know, you see that's where knee valgus gets really keyed on with a lot of people is, 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 you know, with, with a female volleyball player or female athletes in general. So, um, you know, you look at, at someone like that. And I think immediately that the benefit that they see from, from strength training or traditional strength training is going to be, um, once they have a strategy to compress with other than just straight knee valgus, which knee valgus is needed in that situation because what it does is it, it internally rotates their femurs. It allows that pelvic uh, outlet to, to open up a little bit and their pelvic inlet to close and it helps redirect force and pressure back up. So um, it's, it's, and it happens in a slap second too, right? So, so it really does help things pop back up on the, on the other end of that, but you give them another strategy to, 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 to create force like that, to, to be able to self pressurize everything. Um, and now their knees stay healthier and their, their output goes up pretty quickly. So, um, that's not uncommon in basketball, I wouldn't say. Um, but a lot of these guys, when you look at, by the time they get to us and they're 19 plus, um, you know, we say they have a young training age. I don't necessarily agree or disagree with that, but I think that when you consider that, that the amount of load that they're going through with basketball, like they're not untrained, like, these guys do what they do really, really well. Um, and they are, you know, I think this gets you overused, but they're master, you know, compensators. They, they know how to get things done in the way that they do things really well. So, you know, they've got, they built on some strategies that, that help them produce force and not always in a, in a, the most ideal way or the most efficient way, I would say. Um, and so that's where some of the movement quality stuff really taps in, but yeah, to get back to your question, um, that body style, that, that kind of pylon shaped, you know, traffic cone shaped individual. Um, they just don't have the base in their thorax to be able to redirect pressure and volume. And so when that all gets shoved to the bottom, you know, you start to see them interact with the ground poorly. And and obviously that's something that we want to work on with the force output side of things. Blood work is a common analysis in the regime of elite athletes. It quantifies many dimensions and metrics of an athlete's physiology and helps one to see windows of potential performance improvement. Today's episode is also sponsored by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. The company uses a blood test and patented algorithm to analyze your body's physiological markers, providing you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you. Inside Tracker then offers science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. In using Inside Tracker myself, it was truly fascinating to see the many metrics of my own physiology, looking at things like hormone levels, inflammation, blood oxygen-related metrics, and much more. If you are interested in an Inside Tracker analysis, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. And to get that discount, head to insidetracker.com slash justflysports. So with uh yeah that more like you said pylon shaped have a hard, they have a hard time redirecting the guts like that is then a person who would do better with more compressive stimuli like they need that um like let's say even like a back squat versus a front squat situation or or whatever you know as a very basic example like that would be better for them potentially because that will help them at least on the level of the pelvis like have more explode output 
there so they don't have to just rely on like a knee in you know knees coming in situation to to revert what is that a good summary or is that my off there that's i mean that's close yeah that that is and again like the the, the principles are the same the the strategies kind of are based on what you're comfortable coaching and, and what you find effective in the in the population that you work with so if you want to use a basketball example yeah let's use that but but there has to be some other kind of governors that mm-hmm. that work with that right so let's uh if you're gonna if we're gonna put them in a back squat let's limit the depth so they're gonna sit down to a box they're gonna learn how to control their pelvis on the descent so you're helping them kind of by by putting the bar on their back you're gonna shove them anterior anyways right so Mm -hmm. so now their center of mass is going to be forward that's going to be a more propulsive position for them to be in um you limit them with a box so you you make them control down let's say to halfway because halfway in their squat is going to be again the most compressive type of position that you're going to put them in from a pelvic stance um you have them control to that so they learn how to limit their depth they learn how to descend appropriately um you can have them sit on that box or you know tap the box whatever you want to do in terms of de-weighting at the bottom and then you have them redirect back up quickly so so you just kind of constrain the exercise enough um, that it gets you what you're looking for from a control standpoint. So it doesn't take away from their ability to, to descend, right? Like that pylon shaped person is probably pretty good at, at descending appropriately, um, or probably good at descending, maybe not appropriately because they'll, they'll just fall in most mm-hmm. cases, but you give them the exercise that sets them up to be most, most effective. And, and that's generally going to be stop them at the point where they would lose pelvic position and then help them you know, redirect back up. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So back squat with nuances that help their weaknesses become shored up a little bit. Right. Right. And then for for them, for that group too, like, are you coaching, is it, would it be the same thing, like inhale on the way down, exhale on the way up, or would you be more focusing on an exhale in that population? Like we need to compress at the bottom. Like how does your breathing, how would your, you, maybe you've said it already. And if so, I apologize, but, or in the last show you probably did, but, um, what any cues for the, the breath or the pressure with the breath and like that back squat, uh, partial squat situation? Yeah. So, so for, for compression, it's a lot easier. So really you have three options when you're looking at coaching, breathing on an exercise, you have an inhale, which is going to bias, you know, inhalation It's going to help them expand. You have a breath hold and you have an exhale breath hold and exhale are the same thing. So um, when you look at like powerlifting Valsalva maneuver, like there's a reason people hold their breath and it, basically creates a, a cylinder of compression in your thorax. So um, an exhale, uh, Bill used to say this all the time, but an exhale or a, a breath hold is just an exhale against a closed glottis. So you are pushing pressure back up. You are, you are, you know, bearing down in a way that would be an exhale. You're just not allowing the exhale, the actual breath to leave. So um, you can use either one of those depending on how you set up the box. So if we're going to go back to that back squat example, if I want it to be a tap and go on the box, so I don't want you to de-weight at the bottom, I'm going to have you take a little inhale at the top. I'm going to have you hold your breath on the way down. So you keep that column of compression. As the weight starts to push you down, you compress more. You tap the box and you're able to redirect with an exhale on the way back up. That makes it really easy for them to remember. And that makes it really easy for me to coach it, right? Because then there's really not a lot of thought that goes into it. Inhale, top, hold your breath as you go down. That keeps you compressed. And then you release that, which helps you compress a little bit more on that exhale. If I want you to de-weight at the bottom, there's a time component to this now that I don't want you holding your breath all this time now. So what I might do is have you exhale on the way down, do a small inhale while you de-weight on the box because your pelvic pelvic diaphragm is going to descend a little bit as you de-weight there anyways. And then I'll just have you exhale right back up. So for, for a coaching sake and from a fluidity's sake, be creative with the way that you use those, but understand that that a breath hold and exhale essentially do the same thing. And that the only way that I'm going to bias an inhale on something like that is, is to, to inhale. Got it. That makes sense. And it makes me think like, I, I found that to be the case when I was back when I was um, like in my peak years in track and field, I always enjoyed partial squats to a box, not sitting, just tap and go. And I always... I, I don't know, like the whole like sit down on the box thing never, I mean, I know it has its context, but I think it didn't appeal to me maybe just from what I felt in terms of my outputs. And I also, I feel like too, um, like it, team sports are probably a little bit different than, uh, or maybe I'll get to, I'll, I'll just transition to this in that, or sorry, I'm muddying my thoughts. Okay. Um, 
So with that, I would imagine that it would be hard for uh, like a an athlete to do that squat to a box and be asked to reverse it quickly upon a tap and not like do an exhale either you know closed or or actual like exhaling like it 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 seems like it'd be hard to do that wrong do you see athletes i mean is that usually the case is there a place where there needs to be a coaching intervention that comes in at all with that generally not um like the the concentric portion is easy because everybody does what they do anyways like you are either going to hold your breath or you're going to exhale when you come out of the bottom of a squat like that's it's really really counterintuitive to do any like an inhale during that portion Mm -hmm. um where where the coaching really comes in and again like i said this in the last episode too i am not big on on coaching cues while they're doing something i try to set Mm -hmm. it up in a way that they're going to be successful but if if i've got everything else in place on that on that back squat exercise and all i have to say is okay little inhale at the top hold your breath on the way down they're going to do everything else kind of appropriately on, on something like that so i don't have to say a whole lot um and if that's where their attention's at, then is, is that breath hold, um, things are probably going to go the right way, regardless of, 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 you know, the rest of the exercise. So yeah, it force output generally like that breath will come out, um, or, or there'll be, they'll be bearing down on it. So, so it's really not something that needs to be coached a whole lot. Cool. So for the flip side of things, like let's say you have an athlete who is the, like a traffic cone upside down shape or like a lot of basketball players, I'm sure. Um, or male basketball players at least but where the shoulders are wide the hips are narrower and the gravity is more their friend and maybe so in that situation how are you looking at the the squatting and the compression and i would imagine they're already getting a lot of that and just jumping in their sport right um with that or accelerating or whatnot but once you flip the pylon now how is that impacting how you're looking at compression and squatting yeah um let's use that same example then. Like if, if I've got this, um, you know, ice cream cone shaped athlete now that I'm working with that really does redirect forces upwards. Well, um, you know, a lot of times they'll say, you know, they're bouncy or springy. Um, they've got kind of this low level operational jumping stuff down, um, the higher end force output, they still probably have some issue with just because, um, I don't know how often like max effort jumping happens in basketball. And that's something that like we're still getting into in terms of the data points that we get here. But, um, you know, they do a ton of operational jumps throughout the day. So they're, they're a little bit lower level. Um, and so like, let's use that same squat example. Um, I can set them up in a front squat or like a Zercher squat in that case, then I can still have the box set where it sits. So wherever they lose control of their pelvic diaphragm on the way down, but I still want it to be, kind of slower and controlled. I want them to, to be able to, I hate using like the concentric eccentric aspect, like the, <laughs> the verbiage that goes around that. But like, if I want them to eccentrically load, so I want them to be able to control their pelvic diaphragm on the way down. Um, let's inhale them on the way down in that searcher squat. Um, I'm going to have them de-weight at the bottom because I don't think they do that well. So their pelvic diaphragm is actually going to descend instead of being in that kind of constant ascended position that it is, um, you know, pushing force back up. Um, and then I'm still going to give them the speed part, you know, on the way off the box. I don't want to take away from the force output end of things. I want them to be quick, but I I'm much more focused on the, the downward portion of that and the seated portion of that and, and the way that that looks than I am the upward portion. Cause I know that's going to be good, right? Like I know that depending on the load that I've put on the bar in that situation, the, the concentric portion is not going to be what hinders me on this exercise. So um, that's what I see more often than not in this environment is like, how do they, how do we help them interact uh, towards the ground in a, in a more efficient way? How do we help them change levels in a more efficient way? Um, and so that's where a lot of these constraints kind of come into play with, with the training that we do. Cool. Uh, how might things change um, or does this play into plyometrics at all or any sort of jump training? I mean, Obviously, these athletes are jump training in their sport in practice constantly, and I would imagine this would be more of a thing with the younger athletes who have some time. But does that do, do you look at the compression level, expansion level? And you mentioned with max jumps, I think that's what kind of got me on this um, with with jump training, actual like plyometric type stuff. Yeah, so it actually it, it plays in a lot because I do like I'm I'm big on kind of the contrast pairing of stuff like that because I want them. 
like, again, you mentioned that, that drawing that I did. And so if I'm looking at things from a accept force, create force, create force quickly, create force quickly, repeatedly kind of hierarchy that they do there. Um, let's say that that first exercise with the Zercher squat to the box is kind of my accept force portion. I'm looking at their ability to, to change levels, to, to expand and, and, and reorient and kind of descend the pelvic diaphragm, right? So that's my, that's my portion of accept force. I'm looking for heel contact. I'm looking for maybe a more vertical tibial angle um, and for like vertical pelvic displacement on the way down in the squat. So they're able to keep their chest upright and they're able to sit straight down. If I progress that out, let, let's say the next step and the next exercise I use. So that was my 1A. My 1B then might be, um, might be a low level like seated box jump. So now I have them control their butt on the way down to the box. I preset the level of the box. I have them rest on the box for two seconds and then jump. And, and so now they're able to, with less load, lower their body weight to a level that I've said is, you know, acceptable for this individual. They de-weight on the box for two seconds. So I allow their pelvic to descend a little bit. And then I, I have them reorient to compression back out of that position. So then I've got, you know, my first level of, of box jump there. And then let's go over to the hurdles and let's do um, some like two foot repeat hops. I'll set up like six or eight hurdles. Let's take time between each hurdle. And so now with this repeatability, and that's maybe not quick, but but now I'm asking them to do the same kind of jump with less time and less constraint. So hit the ground. I want their heel contact. I want them to reload with their arms. They jump over the next hurdle. They hit the ground. They reload. So I'm getting them through the propulsive phases. They'll hit they'll they'll get into their early position so heels are going to hit um you know as they land on the ground they reorient they're allowed to have their arms swing on the way back they go back through forward into the propulsive phase and they hit the ground again so now i've made that repeatable and then i might take away all of those constraints and have them go you know ankle hops at the end to, as kind of like a, a final progression for something like that and again that's a lot of jumping you know i don't know where that fits maybe in our in our programming right now but I've had them accept, I've had them create force on that seated box jump. I have them create force quickly and then quickly repeatedly. So you, you kind of go through that phase and you say, all right, the majority of what I'm looking at with this exercise is the goal that I, that I put forward in, in those, those principles of training that I basically set out. And so, um, you know, how do we creatively implement this into our training and make sure that we're getting the most bang for our buck. So jumping and the whole like compression and expansion continuum, and then um, being a youth sports coach and having young children has been really interesting for me because I look at how children move and it's all, they don't compress a whole lot, if at all. Like they, I mean, everything is like expansive, very, very quick off the ground. I mean, to the point where I think a lot of these kids can create at least ground contacts that are beyond what a lot of adults can, can hope for. They just don't compress very much. And, but it's also that, that bounce that like the ability to kind of remain expanded uh and and just to i guess put more context behind that for people who aren't super like if you were where i was two years ago i'd say expanded and i would be like what like like so more to me more like limbs are more extended more externally rotated um more supinated position that you're ready to basically deflect the ground a little bit better yeah uh, to me i'm like that makes up like being able to be reactive later in life you know it's just i uh, so well, it's interesting, I guess, I think about that. And me being a track like uh, track coach, was track athlete, and still plan on competing more as I get throughout my master's years. But like to me, that bounce is like a cornerstone. Like That's a key. And I think the thing that I haven't thought about as much is jumping that is more intentionally compressive. I, I guess I've gone through jump training my whole life being like, well, don't bend your, you shouldn't bend your legs too much. You need to rebound. And that's totally true. I mean, to be a high level, like, you know, to be able to you know, jump from the free throw line and dunk, like you have to be able to have that type of ability or any sort of explosive, like bouncy elasticity. But then I've also paid more attention in recent years to athletes who can't yield in in jumping at all. Like they just can't yield. They have a hard time dropping into a jump, compressing, like they're just stuck in kind of bounce mode and oftentimes with some compensations on it when they're an older athlete. And so that's where, yeah, like that, I, I and I'm coming back around, but I've I've had individuals who have been injury prone who just can't seem to dip down into jumps. <laughs> like they just can't yield in in a jumping situation and I don't think it's helping them. And so 
if I was going to um, prescribe jumps where I wanted them to yield more, like I, I like what you were saying, like co- complexes where you're actually sitting down in a box where you're letting things expand more. I, I just find that fascinating. I never, I guess I hadn't really paid much attention to that, that compressive zone. And would you say that's, I mean, I, I'm maybe what I'll ask is just if you care to, I guess, expand on what I just said at all, or for athletes who really need that, that compressive zone more than others, just like in lifting, like in jumping someone who you see might need that more than someone else. Right. I think in general, when you're looking at like training for athletes, um, you want them to be able to produce as much force and as little time as possible. So when you look at that and, and Bill will call this like max propulsion, um, when you look at that moment, generally that's like right at their amortization phase of a jump. So where, you know, there's zero velocity, they're redirecting from down to that upward portion. So I think, you know, when we look at like the force plate data here, it's that's your impulse moment where, or force at zero velocity where you're looking at, that transition between down to up in the jump. Um, you want that moment to happen as quickly as possible um, with as much force behind it as possible. And then the redirection before and after that. So, so you have the sandwiched moment of IR that is, you know, the most compressive moment that they're going to have in the jump. And then before and after that are layers of ER. So ER and that expansive quality is required to get down into your counter movement. Um, if you're not doing that well, then you're probably just compensating through through you know the the lower limbs. Um, so whether that's heel coming off the ground early or knees driving forward a lot or hips shooting straight back in, in kind of this this horizontal displacement of your pelvis, um, you know athletes are good at compensating with that, but it doesn't allow them the kind of lengthening of the connective tissues that they need to mm. to have a, a you know elastic snap back and, and aid in their jump performance. So um, if you take the time in that box squat to, to sit down you allow the tissues to lengthen uh, or yield like they should, um, and, and then you allow them, you know, the, the kind of vertical displacement and, and descent of their pelvic diaphragm that they need, and they're able to reorient that quickly. So like we talked about that tap or, or being able to get back off the box quickly, um, then you're looking at an athlete who's able to produce force quickly, but then able to reorient back into ER and that expansive quality that they should be in as they, as they leave the ground on a jump. So how you piece that together for an athlete is going to be really, really different based on their starting point. So again, we talked about these two different shapes, like one needs a little bit more of the compression end of things, but they need, you know, they need some speed behind it. And the other one probably needs a lot of time in order to, to learn how to descend well, because they already have the force output ends of things kind of covered. Um, and so that, that's where you kind of get into the nitty gritty of like, you know, where does this person start at? You know, what are all the variables that we're looking at in terms of, of how we prescribe an exercise and how we set something up for somebody? And then, you know, are they able to perform that in a way that's going to increase performance? And generally what that looks like is, is their ability to yield. So are they able to, to allow force to distribute through the tissue appropriately? And then are they able to like store some of that energy during that lengthening portion in order to, to concentrate orient and have everything shortened again and as quickly, as, as quickly and efficiently as possible before they leave the ground again. So um, that's a long way of saying, yeah, like there's, there's a lot of, of different factors that we've got going on there, but, but you have to be able to, to distribute force. And the more efficiently you distribute force, the more force output you likely have on the other end of that, because you are, you're storing that in the connective tissue and then it gets released on that concentrate portion again. Hmm. Um, Eric, I really wanted to get into asymmetry today. I don't know if we'll have time to do that topic justice, so maybe I'll have to save it. But um, I do want to just continue on this or finish up this train of thought briefly is how, uh, so in terms of athletes who are higher level playing sports a lot, they are getting a lot more of their jumping within their sport. Um, And I was just off a... I just came off a conversation with Boosh Nexator and, and uh, a few others. And Boosh mentioned this several times. He really likes for um, like higher level players who are jumping a lot to do. And you mentioned this too, like how often do they do a max jump, but to do like a depth jump workout, a very low volume, like once every 14 or 17 days or something. And, but anyway, anyways, what I'm trying to ask is how, 
uh, what are some of the really cornerstone differences in the types of jump training, if any, that you're asking of a youth versus a higher level? Like, is it just still to whatever they need? Or does there trends that you're going to definitely see for youth and what you're looking at in jump training uh, as opposed to um, like the higher the higher end athletes? Maybe I'll just start there. Yeah, for youth athletes, I try to I don't allow them to spend a lot of time on the ground generally. Like I I I don't want them um, I don't want them because again this is just generalizing a lot of things. But mm-hmm. like for, for most youth athletes, they already disperse forces pretty well, and I don't want them to I don't want to feed into that by allowing them this really extended ground contact on a lot of stuff. Um, you know, I think that, that the way that their tissues work, first of all, they're not over compressed in most, in, in most cases, like if they've, if they've played their sport for a couple of years, they're, they're trending towards, um, you know, having some general sports strength, um, when you look at how specific that is, but, but they don't typically have, um, this really rigid structure that they, that they operate in. So, you don't want to give them a ton of time on the ground to to allow gravity to do too much of its job and allow them to to be you know too loose and relaxed in that position. Um, and so you're looking at more of that kind of ground contact time. How quickly are they able to redirect? Um, do we limit their ability to to disperse force as much as they probably would in a normal circumstance? And and generally, yeah, I try to keep them off the ground as much as possible so it becomes really low uh, high frequency, like low volume, low intensity jumping. So, um, you look at kind of like uh, really basic examples, like line hops or, or, you know, angle hops in place. You just try to get them with the emphasis of getting off the ground quickly. Um, guys here, um, I band assist a ton of their jumps and I let them take time on the ground in between each of those. So I, I, this is for the high level here at the, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, so for higher level guys, like they are already really good at getting off the ground quickly. Um, in most cases, they, they reorient well. Things are already from a pressure volume standpoint and their thorax being driven upward. So I try to allow them more time. Uh, again, like we talked about finding a heel, like finding a heel and a jump uh, for them takes time. It, it really does. You have to have that be a constant kind of reminder for them when they land on the ground. It's like, okay, take the time to get your heel down before you go back up because it, it I want it to be relatively fast, but I don't want it to be um, the speed that they're normally able to operate at, which is, you know, usually much quicker than I can demonstrate in a lot of cases. Um, so, you know, when I give them a, a band assisted jump, I'm like, okay, let's take time. Let's sink into the bottom of this a little bit. Um, I might have them go past the depth that they would normally go in their standard counter movement. And let's let the band do its job and de-weighting you on the way down as much as possible. Like, let's let that, um, that band take away a lot of your need to, um, your need to keep pressure building up, um, in your thorax and let's let it like, like simmer down at the bottom a little bit. So take time, find your heel, um, you know, redirect things upward quickly, which the band does help do that. Cause it'll start to pull you off the ground a little bit, but like, let's make you lighter than body weight as you get towards the bottom of, of that jump that way things are allowed to settle and relax a little bit and then you're able to reorient back up quickly. So yeah, I give them much more time on the ground because the things that they do normally are so, mm-hmm. so quick off the floor. I mean, these guys just, uh, it's, it's hard to keep them. And again, you, you just want access to it, right? Like I don't want them, I don't want all of these guys to start like, you know, double jumping for rebounds and be stuck to the ground every time, but you do want them to have access to the positions that are going to, allow their tissues to redistribute force well um it's just everything has got a time component to it yeah it's really like in that um that chart you drew up for that'll be in the show notes just the the have movement options then be able to compress uh and and display power and then it's like to be able to then do that repeatedly and and it makes me think also that that chart could be extrapolated to a timeline almost too. You have like young athletes who have all the movement options in the world for the most part. And then you start to have more of a performance drive. You start to play your sport. You start to eventually specialize and play that a lot. And at that point, it's almost like the expansion there is just to give them movement options. So they're not getting hurt or so they have just a little bit more um, to be able to a little more bandwidth at that point. It's, It's a fundamental change in thinking. And I think that 
it's like the track coach in me would be a little sad. It's like, oh, I can't do like super bouncy hurdle hops. And I mean, I could, but like, it's not what you need for that elite level. Like you're already doing that hundreds and maybe thousands of times in the course of a, a playing week. So, right. That's, um, I, I agree too with, um, it's interesting with like the youth. Cause yeah, having like my own kids are three and five. I just finished coaching like a five-year-old soccer team and you just see kids who are just, they are bounce like for the most part just, and then. I'll work with athletes who are 11 or 12 or, or 15 and they aren't bouncing. I mean, sometimes they are, but a lot of times that bounce is gone. And so I'm always wondering, well, how did you lose it? And so I, I definitely agree with that. Like, I just think of it like we want the bounce. We want that elastic ability of what a child in the playground playing barefoot has. And we want to be able to maintain that, but then put some power on it. And so for that, like youth population, you'd want to train that that high bounce ability, but then to for like the compression, you would reach to like the the weights and the like the squats for that, not the right. plyos. Right. Yeah. At some point, at some point, that becomes. Um, and again, it's all about the way that you coach it. If you do everything with a relatively high load for the individual, so so you know you you've loaded them up. You know, I don't I don't do things off for percentages because I don't mm-hmm. necessarily agree with that. But if something is a relatively high load for me with a squat, like I'm going to move it slowly. And so you're teaching the tissue at that point to produce force at a, at a relatively low rate of force production, right? Like you are teaching the tissue that you're going to produce max force. It's just going to take five seconds for you to get up in this, in this, you know, squat example, um, rather than the time that you would actually use it in sport, which needs to be as quickly as possible. Um, and so when you pattern that time after time, like you've created a slow athlete, like you've created somebody who, who doesn't necessarily, who is strong, but their, their ability to tap into their full range of force production takes so long that, you know, the, the player, whatever they, whatever they're participating in is over by the time that they've, they've hit peak force. So again, even when you, when you're working with youth athletes, like let's, let's take into consideration the speed that you want. That's where I think like the VBT training and some of this stuff is, is going to continue to, to prove its value in a lot of ways is by saying like, let's get you stronger, but let's get you stronger in a way that's applicable for what you, like what you participate in. Like, let's, let's put, let's add strength value. Let's add, let's raise your, your basement for force production up but let's make it applicable for the sport that you're playing. Like that's the goal across the board is if it takes me, you know, if I'm working with a guy and it, it takes him, this is a terrible example, but you know, 5,000 Newtons to drive past you on the floor. And I raise your ceiling to of a force production to 8,000 Newtons. Um, then every time you do that 5,000 Newton drive past somebody, you know, I'm not hitting that ceiling mm-hmm. yet. So your ceiling can be like, you're able to do that for 35 minutes on the court rather than, you know, constantly being at your max level of force production so there's value in increasing force production over time there's value in all of that but like let's do it in a way that that also keeps in mind the speed of the sport that you're working with yeah i really like that example too with the like the the 3000 newton like basically like reserve that you don't use in so many of those actual movements and it's it's a good way of putting it eric i really like Like, I really like that. I mean, so many times in any, with any exercise or whatever you're doing, it's so easy to say, well, it depends. And I mean, it is true, but I really enjoy the fact that we were able to talk about different athlete types, the pile on up, pile on down, different age groups, youth, pro. It just, it helps it all to really make sense and to really start connecting dots and seeing the bigger picture. And so I, I I wish we had time to get into asymmetry today, but I think uh, in, in the case of what we or, you know, the, the case of what we were able to chat about today. I, I really learned a lot and I appreciate your time, man. Thanks so much for taking the sure. time to discuss these things. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's always fun. Cool. Thanks for tuning in for another show. We'll see you all next week.